Hey everyone, this is Peter Levin, and you're listening to another episode of In Good Hands, a show about the companies and founders solving our climate crisis. Today, I interview Monica Duran and Caroline McKay, co-founders of Ryu. Ryu is a consumer goods company that brings artisan-made accessories to life. And the unique thing about Ryu is twofold. One, all of their products are handcrafted by artisan communities in Latin America. Their scarves from Peru, their bags from Ecuador, and so on. And on the other front, sustainability is a really interesting part of their DNA. Because all of their products are handcrafted, some of the specs don't actually make their way into the products tit for tat, pixel by pixel. But instead of throwing away those products to waste, they actually look to those as features, right? Handles that are tad longer. And what they found was some customers actually prefer the longer handles, for example. And in addition to that, they also are very thoughtful about the cadence at which they bring these collections to life. Instead of mass producing, they're doing these limited supply drops to make sure they're not throwing tons of supply to waste, which is pretty status quo in the industry today. And in the episode, Monica, Caroline, and I will discuss how exactly they got their start with Ryu, finding the artisan communities in Latin America, setting up their initial supply chain, and making sure that it's resilient in a COVID and post-COVID world, how they've delegated responsibilities in the early innings, and what the moonshot is for a consumer goods company like Ryu. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy our conversation with Monica Duran and Caroline McKay, co-founders of Ryu. Caroline and Monica, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Peter. So y'all, let's start with the basics. What is Ryu? Sure. So we are a sustainable accessory line with a focus on empowering artisans and specifically women whenever possible. As we all know, the pandemic has shed some light on some of the shortcomings of the fashion industry. Our hope is to forge a new path and be part of the change. Um, Caroline and I understand that choices matter. And as we grow and change our business model, we will continue to make decisions that keep sustainability top of mind. We sell our products in drops. Currently, we have handwoven Takiya straw bags on the site. And very soon, at some point in October, we will be launching some alpaca scarves. So be- before we dive into the problem that Ryu solves and the different products and how you operate, let's rewind into your backgrounds. What's the quick, you know, 30, 60 second brief on both of your backgrounds and how you came to start Ryu? Yeah, Monica, you want to start there? Oh, sure. I was born and raised in Ecuador in the 1990s, which was a time, you know, characterized by political turmoil and a terrible economic downturn. And from an early age, I became interested in learning more about the region's developmental challenges and finding solutions to create a more inclusive and just society. So I moved to the U.S. for college, went back to the region briefly for about a year after graduating to complete a Princeton in Latin America fellowship and moved back to the States to get a master's degree in Latin American studies with a focus on economic development. And today I am based in New York and I currently work for an international human rights organization. My background probably isn't as interesting as Monica's, but I was born in the States. I moved quite a bit as a kid, including to London. So I had kind of an international upbringing and just kind of throughout my life have had a huge interest in travel and design and hospitality and kind of, you know, just watching different international kind of communities, you know, form, come together, things like that. And so Monica and I met in college and after college, I moved from New York to LA. I worked in a small PR firm and then I went on to do communications for Soho House for their properties internationally. And you know, then moved back to New York and Monica and I, you know, have been kind of friends through all of it. And we both kind of just forged our interests basically to come together to create Ryu. Yeah. If I might add something real quick. So I would say like our dream of creating a platform to bring artisanal Latin American products into the U.S. market was born like 
five years ago. I remember traveling back and forth between the U.S. and Ecuador and bringing back little gifts for my friends. And I absolutely loved visiting indigenous craft markets. And one time I brought Caroline some alpaca scarves and she was absolutely blown away by the quality of the products. And that is when we started chatting about creating a channel where we could bring artisanal talent to the U.S. And of course, all of these conversations were informal, but little by little, we started testing the landscape and showing the products to friends and family. Got it. So if we look at Ryu today, uh, you launch with a pretty wide collection of products. And, you know, as I've spoken to founders on the show before, one of the more challenging parts of taking the leap into starting your own thing is figuring out how to actually bring it to life. So <laughs> can you help connect the dots? How do you start? Do you have an existing relationship with artisans in Latin America who you've developed relationships with and say, hey, we, we'd love to lean on your expertise to bring these accessories and bags to existence? What does that first mile look like for Ryu? Yeah, I think I can kind of touch on that just a little bit. So I think for us, one of the big things from the start when starting Ryu was really kind of, you know, dissecting every business decision and kind of seeing, you know, what made the most sense in terms of products, but also, you know, who we wanted to work with, you know, where we wanted them to be coming from and stuff. And I think for us, you know, Monica, as Monica said, I'll let her expand on this too, more on the material and, you know, the art of the hand weaving and everything like that. But, you know, we started really with the bags because one of Monica's friends in Ecuador, she had done a lot of, you know, research into, you know, these different artisanal groups there. And so she actually had a few suggestions for us on a few women artisan groups there that we should kind of look into. So from there, we were really able to see different examples of different styles of weaving, styles of bags, and then kind of select which group we wanted to go with. But then also, you know, one thing I wanted to highlight from the beginning too is we really want to highlight these traditional craftsmanship techniques, but also we want to, you know, bring these to light so that they, you know, kind of get more attention, but also kind of making sure that they're current and in fashion today. And we, you know, part of the sustainability of everything too, of course, is that we really want to make kind of timeless creations that really last where people can kind of be carrying their bag for years, you know, down the line and kind of have that appreciation towards that handcrafted good. But, you know, as I said, in terms of starting, it was really that initial connection. And I think from there, you know, we obviously, as Monica mentioned, had already an interest in scarves. So I think for us, it was really, what are, you know, for us, we just really wanted to understand, okay, what are the baseline of, you know, what we want to be offering? And we wanted to make sure, obviously, like we said, that it was, you know, that product was catered to that region and that it was the best, basically, that they had to offer. So that's kind of how we decided who to go with and make those connections. But we also made these connections, obviously, during the pandemic. So we can touch on this later, but there is definitely some struggles with kind of that back and forth. One of the other things that I've always found interesting in the world of fashion is trying to balance the friction between your own taste and the needs of the customer. In many ways, it's part of the reason why I think fast fashion has thrived over the last decade mm. is they can very quickly turn around collections of items based on direct feedback from customers versus some of these other designer shops that function and operate on a drop-by-drop -drop basis that lean much more into their personal taste, their trend setting. So in your experience, did both of you seek out feedback from a group of people first? How did you select the first products that were in collection number one? 
Yes. So we did. Obviously, we did lean into our own taste a lot. Just as I said, we wanted to make sure that it was these really timeless creations. But we did kind of do a little bit of market research. And then we also sent a big survey to friends and family just to really understand colorways, what people were interested from that perspective, and kind of the styles that really resonated with people. And like you said, there was a lot that we were actually surprised about. We're like, huh, we didn't really think that would be something someone would be interested in. And, you know, they ended up really being interested in that. But I think one thing too to note is also, and Monica and I really do believe this is, you know, we do understand kind of, and I'm sure we'll discuss this a little bit later when we talk more about the industry as a whole, but we do really understand that, you know, we as millennials, people are really used to getting things immediately and things like that. But we're we're also not looking, you know, for the customer that's going to H&M and purchasing a $10 straw bag. You know, for us, our customers are really interested in kind of the process behind these. And the comments we get about them, people are just fascinated by the quality and just really the beauty of the bags themselves. And I think that's what really kind of keeps us going and makes us recognize that there is such a market for this. And people, especially as of late, are really starting to care more about where are things from and not just consume, but rather thinking, but putting some thought really behind a purchase and myself included. And so I think that's been a really interesting thing to see, you know, just the fact that with our first drop, people had to wait almost a month to get their bag because of delays with the pandemic and also just the nature of a handwoven good. And there was, I was expecting, you know, to start to get some emails, things like that. You know, obviously we made it very clear what the timeline looked like, but no one had any issue with that. And I think that was a really interesting thing for us to see. That is interesting. The the thing that piqued my interest most about the model, and I don't think I've seen it done before on a recurring basis, is this notion of pre-ordering. You write on your site, to minimize waste, we are committed to a pre-order only shopping experience. So my question for y'all is, at what point did you settle on this approach to procuring orders and then fulfilling them? Was it baked in from day one? Was it a solution to uh, de-risking capital investments up front? Talk me through your thinking around that commitment because it is really interesting. Yeah, so I can take that one on. And it is important to mention that for the first two drops, we did stick to a pre-order only model. But as we're growing and diversifying our products, we are now going to explore also the small batch route. As a brand, we ultimately did not want to be in a position where we mass produce to keep costs low and certainly did not want to bring waste to a world that doesn't need it. It has been widely reported that a bunch of luxury brands such as Burberry have actually burned millions of dollars worth of inventory to maintain brand value. And at Rayu, we really wanted to not mass produce and to also have handmade offerings for our clients. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You, you hear and you see the headlines. It's almost just weekly at this point. We had Queen of Raw, Stephanie from Queen of Raw on the show episodes back. And her business is connecting surplus textile material with fashion houses that are looking to do exactly what you guys do, you know, is create beautiful products. But the scale of the waste problem in fashion is just like crazy. Um, on the drop, because I think this rhythm and cadence of bringing new products to life is super interesting. And Caroline, I'm, you know, living in New York, I'm super familiar with Soho House. And I think Soho House in many ways has been the pinnacle of highly selective, curated, almost exclusive experience where 
unlike, let's say, gyms, where their model thrives, depends on the maximum amount of signups, but the least amount of people actually showing up. (laughs) Whereas Soho House says, you know what? We're the opposite. Yes, we want a lot of members, but we have very well-defined caps, the amount of members you know, per location. We will price accordingly, but all of these things dictate the customer experience and help maintain this kind of high level of expectations and relationship between the vendor and the customer. So uh, for you specifically, how have your experiences or how did your experiences at Soho House translate and manifest in operating and starting? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. And I totally agree. I think that's always really kind of been, you know, the fascination behind Soho House as well, because it's such an international company. And each property, and this is something I found really interesting and also, you know, really resonates with a lot of people, is each property has these familiarities that you do feel like it's a Soho House, but at the same time, they're so different from a design perspective. They really go in with the neighborhood and things like that. And I think that actually kind of relates back to Ryu in that, you know, as Monica mentioned, and as we talked about a little bit, our products are really kind of central to where they're from. You know, our bags are from, you know, Ecuador. This is a traditional, you know, hand-woven craft that has been around for hundreds, maybe even thousands of years. Monica knows more about that. But that's something that's really kind of central to it. And I think that's really important to us is really kind of not just going, you know, and simplifying things for us in terms of production by going to one country and trying to do everything out of there. You know, our scarves are from Peru because that's where we know the best, you know, alpacas from things like that. So I think that's, what's been really fun for us, but also a hundred percent with our drop model there, it kind of creates a little bit of a hype around it. And we always find, you know, the day we do the drop is that when our biggest amount of purchases are our biggest amount of visits to the site. And I think it's because we hype it up, we make people know that it's kind of coming, and then it kind of builds this anticipation. And in our first drop, we sold out of a lot of our bags so that, and then we didn't even realize we had this, but we had this wait list on the site where you could sign up. And I guess we just put it on there, not really knowing. And then we looked back a few weeks later and we're like, oh my gosh, there's so many people who are interested in this bag. So we ended up kind of then just including that as part of the second drop as well and saying, you know, there was a lot of interest in this particular bag. If you still want to order it, you know, we're putting some up more up on the site. So I think that's really informed for us kind of what the customer wants. But also kind of, like I said, helps us build a little bit of hype, but also, you know, some fun different things around the brand. And I think it also kind of tells us, you know, what people like and what they don't from the onset. So we'll see in the numbers really what people are gravitating towards. And then we know, you know, for our scarves, for the small batch, we'll have an understanding of, okay, this is probably not a color we'll pursue in the future. This isn't a style we'll pursue in the future based on that initial drop. So I think that's what's been kind of really interesting and, you know, does kind of fit in with that bit of the kind of, you know, the building hype that also, you know, Soho House has when they open a new house or a new location or, you know, really just understanding that consumer mindset, frankly. Something that I want to touch on before we segue to what's in the pipeline, the industry at large, is I would say one of the less frequented conversations around the first mile of starting up. And it's this notion of delegation, right? You, Whenever a, a particular publication covers a startup, at that point, typically the startup has multiple employees, they have these key milestones. And you miss out on the first, you know, 365 days of bringing this project to life. So my question for for both of you is, you know, right around the time that y'all are considering the opportunity and then making that first order, building the site, how do you guys define who does what? Like what what was that process <laughs> yeah. like? Uh and how is it manifested in the day-to-day today? That is a great question. And Caroline and I 
have known each other, I think for nine years now, Carol. (laughs) So we've been friends for a long time and we really knew what the strengths of each person were. So I think from my side, I, I have international project management experience and experience dealing with logistics and dealing, frankly, with people from all different backgrounds. And Caroline has amazing PR experience and also has a lot of knowledge of the marketing side of things, which is something that I frankly lacked. So we complemented each other really well. We do. And it's kind of funny. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people, I've had some people, you know, say, oh, you know, be careful with partnerships. They don't work, all this stuff. But honestly, I never feel like either of us are doing, we're really balanced, you know, I think it's one of those things where, you know, we're we're still, as you know, we're small, it's just the two of us. So, you know, I'll be shipping out all the packages personally. And, you know, but Mon is sitting on the other end, you know, doing all the labeling and things like that. So we're really kind of equal, even when it comes to the menial tasks. And I think that's really what's so important. And I think when I don't know something or something is, you know, I'm, my brain is very PR focused. It's also very, you know, marketing focused. So when it comes to taxes, things like that's really where I lack. And I think Mon is really great at kind of filling that in and, you know, having those understandings that I don't. So we really complement each other in that way. And like I said, we're also kind of also, you know, working on all those menial tasks together. So it never feels like it's falling just on one person. And I think that kind of balance is really important from the start because we both kind of feel, well, at least I feel this way supported. I feel supported by Monica and I hope she feels the same by me. (laughs) Hell yeah. I do. Uh, we we are lucky to have each other for sure. <laughs> so I have two tactical questions. One on the promotional side of things and one on the supply chain side of things. So you mentioned that going forward, a lot of the collections will not be pre-order, right? You have this vision or roadmap for what's in the pipeline. So my question for you, probably Monica or Caroline is, when you think about collection now three, four, five, and so on, what are the implications on the supply chain prep side of things? How much work are y'all putting in on making sure that each of the artisan footprints, whether it's in Ecuador and Peru, are ready, set, and have the knowledge of what's to come? What is that thinking like, and how do you map what's in store in terms of collections to prepping and making sure that the supply chain is ready and capable of serving and fulfilling those needs. Kara, do you want me to take that one on? Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, so for the Tokia straw bags, for instance, Tokia straw is something that has been around in Ecuador for centuries. And The art of hand weaving um, is practiced in the highlands of Ecuador by communities of women. So when we decided to launch this project, we knew that there was a lot of talent that was willing and able to help us with these bags. What we did not anticipate was all of the challenges that were coming along with the COVID situation. In Ecuador, transportation between provinces completely stopped at the beginning of COVID. So that was a huge challenge because the tokia straw, which is an organic fiber that comes from palm trees, is only found in the Ecuadorian coast. And what happens is that, you know, people plant it in the coast and then they harvest it and transfer it all the way to the highlands. So that wasn't happening as often just because of the amount of restrictions that were going on. And then at the same time, the weavers normally went to a a place, you know, where they gathered and, and started weaving together, kind of like a workshop. That wasn't happening either because of safety precautions. People um, needed now to weave from the comfort of their own homes. So there were a lot of logistical challenges involved, right? We had contact with our main artist and she had to 
physically drop off the tuquilla straw to each of our weavers' houses to make sure that they were working under safe conditions. So from the start, we knew that we wanted to balance demand also with what our artisans could offer at the time. And that's why we really made a commitment to producing in small batches from the very beginning. I think also... I don't know if that (laughs) answered your question. I think also to add on that, just for preparing for the future, we're very aware of... So we currently work with, as Monica mentioned, we work with one specific group, but we know that there's a bunch of other groups in the area as well. So currently we work with about 15 women. So we know that with those women, we know the cap, honestly, that they can make within a month. So for us informing us going forward, we're very aware of those numbers. And if we, you know, all of a sudden hit a big surge, we know that then we then have to seek out other artisan groups in the area that can, we can design other bags with so that we can manage the demand. So we're very aware of that and we are prepping for it. I think for us, it's kind of, you know, taking it step by step with each of, you know, the different products and the artisans and, you know, kind of going from there. But we we do know that with this type of work, we will have to kind of then connect with, as I mentioned, other artisan groups in order just to manage that supply chain. Because, you know, it's not some like we said, it's not some big factory where they can just, you know, kind of bring in more workers and kind of keep turning things out. And that's exactly the opposite of what we want. So we're just, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of excited for the future of then, you know, one drop may be done with one artisan group, another with another, you know, all with very similar skill sets, all making sure that we're getting the products that we, the quality that we want, but, you know, working with a range. Mm -hmm. And The other tactical question I had was on the promotional side of things. And I'm interested in your perspective, given your work with your PR company, your work at Soho House, and I'll break it down into two parts. The first question is your opinion on building up a portfolio of awareness through organic channels, right? Having the best and most polished Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, et cetera, versus or instead substituting that effort for getting covered by publications. So that's part A. And then part B, I'd love to hear your perspective on how early founders should navigate the process of getting covered in different types of PR. What are the hacks? What are the tactics? But let's start with A. Do you think that getting covered by media is more impactful and that's where early operators should be devoting their time? Or instead, should they be investing in traditional social and paying through those channels? What is your perspective on those two fronts? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. I think personally, it's, you know, and I hate to be this the bearer of bad news, but I think it's honestly a bit of both. So for me, I think it, you know, it so depends on the company, but from our perspective, I do think there's something to be said for kind of building up that really organic following and making sure obviously that you have great content, you're kind of engaging with followers in a meaningful way, but also one thing that a lot of people struggle with and that I see all the time, and, you know, I really try to help my clients with is really just making sure that the content follows who you are and your story, right? You want to be sure. I think there's sometimes a disconnect. You never want someone to go to your website and then go to your Instagram and then go to your Facebook page and see three different stories being told. So I think it's really making sure that you know who you are as a company. And from there, I think PR is obviously such a useful tool. But I also think it really depends on the company in that some companies, they go really hard with PR at the beginning And turns out that they actually don't have the supply chain in place to handle the kind of press they're getting. I've heard some stories, you know, about just like from friends and things like that, where, you know, they'll, they'll launch a product for someone and then the product will sell out and then they actually don't have the supply chain to make more for another few months. So they've kind of ruined 
almost this opportunity to kind of snowball with press, which I think is really key. So when you kind of are starting out with press, there's a few obviously different strategies that you kind of really want to hone in on. But one thing to always note is that you want it to kind of be continuous. You don't want to just have a big bang at the beginning and then nothing, because that's great. People will discover you, but will they keep discovering you? Will they keep seeing new products? So it's really about kind of snowballing that. So and the final thing to note is I think with the social, I really do think organic is huge. I think the, you know, I think if you're putting a lot of money into digital marketing, obviously you can make a dent. But to me, if you're going to, I say, go press before I say put tens of thousands of dollars into digital marketing, in my opinion, but everyone feels Mm -hmm. differently. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And on tactics, right? I'm a early founder. Is it the cold email that works? Do you press prefer warm introductions? What is like the how to for dummies of early operators that are trying to to get some coverage for their young, you know, nascent venture? Yeah, you know, I think the funny thing is a lot of people tend to pitch press as if they're it's a sales pitch. And that is to me just really not the way to do it. I think you really need to first of all understand, so do your research, you know, know what this person covers, really understand, you know, what they've been writing about, what they might be interested from your brand perspective, and then you're really able to kind of pitch them a story that makes sense for them. Second thing is too is, you know, press is interested in things that are newsworthy. So are you kind of a solution to a problem? Are you did you just launch, you know, there's a few different news pegs there, but I would say that you definitely, you know, kind of want to hone in on one of them. People aren't just going to cover you because you're, you exist. You, there has to be a reason for it. So I think that's really what's interesting and kind of honing in on, and that kind of goes back to your original, you know, kind of understanding what your brand story is and really taking that and trying to make that digestible and interesting to press. And I think really that's kind of the struggle a lot of brands have. I'm like, you can't use your same sales pitch or, you know, reuse your social marketing tactics Mm -hmm. and send them to press. It's really not that type of thing. And in terms of a cold email, you know, you definitely can reach out cold. You don't need to know the person. But like I said, I would do your research on the person so that you're very aware of, you know, what they cover, what they're interested in. And so that you can really cater your pitch to them. But overall, I'm really friendly over email, even though I don't know if people appreciate it or not. But I always think it's better to, you know, start off with a, hey, I hope your week's going well, that kind of thing. I wanted to make you aware of this, blah, blah, blah. So, Mm -hmm. you know, that's kind of my tactics there. But everyone kind of handled it a little differently. (laughs) The, The most clever hack that I've seen exploited over the last month is Venmo payments. I don't know if you've seen this making the rounds, but finding your target recipient on Venmo and them, I don't know, two cents or a dollar, and then writing the message in that little description. <laughs> I have not and it's heard been of this. Super high ROI from what I've heard. I haven't tried it yet. I can't wait to try it. That's but. super in from a press perspective or from a consumer perspective. So the best, at least the at least from what I've seen, the best success has been founders raising money. So they've been paying investors for their two cents. That's so they send hilarious. them two cents. They send like a short pitch and a request to chat. And that's amazing. It's been working pretty well from what I've seen. Well, how creative! I've heard, you know. I feel like Venmo's become like kind of this like funny community where it's kind of crazy to me because it's a payment app, you know, but uh-huh. pretty amazing what you can do if you're a little creative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another one that I've seen that's pretty good is finding your target recipient's email. But instead of sending them an email, you just send them a Google Calendar invite and you put a message in the event description. So you just own their calendar and like, by yes, they're going to get a notification, but another kind of free, very easy way to try to hack your way to someone's attention. 
super interesting. I mean, I know with that one, I'm like, I'm not sure if I'd respond well to that or be like, I know, agreed, agreed. Too much, weird. It kind of, you know, depending on the person, that kind of thing. Some people really like that, you know, kind of more get in your face tactic, and if it works, I kind of like that. (laughs) All right, y'all. So let's zoom out to the industry at large. I want to give both of you the opportunity to shout out some of your favorites in the industry, any of the more compelling projects. It could be late. It could be early stage that you just think are really interesting. It could be in the world of fashion. It can be in the world of climate solutions at large. What are you know one or two projects that you both have found really interesting or compelling? Ooh, that's a really good question. <laughs> it is a good question. I don't know if... It's my favorite company out there, but I do think that Everlane has a really interesting model. Mm-hmm. They really were one of the first ones to really explore and fully dive fully into the the world of transparency. I love I, I really love what they were doing there. A hundred percent agree. Everlane is awesome. I think um, in terms of, you know, things we've seen too that you know, there's so many amazing smaller, you know, women owned brands out there, things like that. But I also just kind of love brands that have kind of really owned and adapted to this, you know, drop model and have been super successful in it, like a sporty and rich things like that. It's been really interesting to see how they've done that and how how they've actually kind of aggressively shined a little bit of a light on the industry by building up the following and things that they have. So that was definitely really interesting to me. But overall, there's that's such a good question because there's so many companies out there that I admire so much for, you know, what they're doing and what they're considering when they are, you know, making their businesses. And I wish I had, you know, kind of written down some names because I know I have a whole list. No problem. Yeah, I'm. I, so one of the the trends that I'm not sure is exhausted, but as two founders of a brand, I'd love to hear your perspective on the give and take model that Tom's pioneered and that some other brands have popularized, where every purchase uh, leads to planting of trees or gifting of some sort. What is your perspective on that model today? I think it's a really great model. I think, from, you know, I think it really works well with very certain products. And I think there has to be, you know, I I don't want to say this in a negative way because it's not negative, but I do think it works a little bit better when the products are not, you know, so high end or not necessarily, I think with us, because our products are all handcrafted and there's so much that goes into each, a model like that doesn't exactly work, but I do think it's a really, you know, valid model and i also another model that i've really you know kind of liked seeing is really the you know companies like besides and other stories i'm trying to remember some other like smaller companies that do this as well but there are a lot for example that if you return your jeans or something like that you're you know main well yeah sorry they're recycling them and kind of you know, repurposing them and things like that and giving you a percentage, you know, giving you a percentage off on your next purchase, which is great. But that kind of thing, I do think is a really interesting kind of way of adapting that model as well. So I think there's some cool kind of players in the industry in that regard that are really kind of rethinking that model, but also kind of adapting it in cool other ways. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So The last question of every interview is probably my favorite. It's this notion of the idea graveyard. So my question for you is what are an idea or two that you would love to work on if you had the time to do so, but instead are just rotting away in your idea graveyards? I think for us, just like together, we were kind of thinking about, you know, this process, obviously, and like you said, you don't ever really hear about, you know, kind of the founder's process from the start. 
And there's a lot of stuff, you know, not, neither of us come from an e-commerce background. So there was a lot of learning that went into this. And there was a lot of stuff that we realized really could have been simplified. And this is kind of a funny story about us, but I'll tell it really quick. But basically, you know, we were really trying to figure out just shipping. You know, it seems so simple, but there's so many hacks to it that so many people aren't aware of. So for us to get our products from Ecuador to here, we were really trying to figure out the best way possible. And, you know, we talked to a bunch of other people in this industry and they were actually like, you know, DHL, when you have a smaller amount of products is really the way to go. So Mon and I are we're like, okay, so we put that in our budget or we estimated, you know, quite a bit amount of money for it because we knew it would be expensive. But then, you know, we signed up for a business account with them and we were supposed to get all these discounts when we um, kind of made the, the, you know, the label. So we make the label from the shipment to, from Ecuador to the U.S. And it was almost five times what we had estimated. And we were like, okay, we're going to just, so Mon and I were like, this has been really fun, but we're actually (laughs) going to probably shut down Ryu. (laughs) (laughs) Jokingly. Yeah, I was like, this is our first and last drop. (laughs) Um, And what's also funny is that when we did the estimations for our budgeting and we actually estimated 30% more than what people in the industry had told us. We were like, we need, really need to be careful here. Added that estimate. So we were like in total shock. And Mon is like, this cannot be right. So she spends about two hours on the phone trying to get in, to, you know, in touch with our um, rep from DHL. Turns out because of how you know, big the shipment is and stuff, we actually ended up getting this 80% off discount, which is, you know, something that we actually had only been made aware of by, you know, other people in the industry, which brought it down to actually half of what we estimated. So what would have been five times more than we thought, we actually got it for, you know, like I said, 80% off, but we would have never known had we not talked to someone or had called. And we would have paid that. And then, as I mentioned, shut down our entire business. So I think there is a lot of learning lessons in, you know, first of all, communication and kind of talking with people and really trying to figure out, you know, getting to the bottom of these issues. But, you know, one thing we always said, we're like, there's just got to be an easier way to kind of figure out all this stuff from a business perspective, whether it's taxes, things like that. So I think for us, we really wanted to, you know, we were like, when we have spare time, probably never, but we were like, we should build a platform that just really simplifies this process as a whole from making your LLC mm-hmm. to doing your taxes, to figuring out shipping, really being able to see what's the cheapest options. What are the hacks in terms of, you know, like I said, just knowing to call your rep from DHL and getting a literal 80% discount. Which is crazy that you have to call them to get the discount and it doesn't get applied automatically giving, you know, the amount that you're shipping. And for reference, that's a whole different conversation. And for reference, we actually have to give them a call every time. So it is something that's, you know, it's kind of this archaic way of working things. And it happens to be, you know, throughout the shipping industry as a whole. But, you know, there's all these kind of funny things that we've kind of encountered through all of this, a lot of phone mm-hmm. calls with a lot of different companies. And so that, you know, as we always thought would be kind of a great, you know, thing, even if it was just a resources platform, you know, one stop shop of, mm-hmm. you know, where to go to be able to do all this. So that's mm-hmm. kind of been in our ideas graveyard. What about that inspired a thought? It's almost like honey for business. Now you yeah. go to, to checkouts and honey scans the internet for active promo codes. Why isn't there a similar inventory of discounts for business, right? UPS, yeah. DHL, Stripe, yeah. uh, AW, et cetera. 100%. And you know, um, it's hard because it's it's really you have to kind of sign up for accounts with all of them and really talk to people in order to even figure out the discounts offered in the first place. And then you also have to provide like exact shipping measurements. So it's really not that simplified. And, you know, and Mon touched on this a little bit earlier, but in general, one thing, you know, that kind of we, we do to emphasize is that we do our best in terms of sus- sustainability. So we do use compostable, you know, packaging materials, you know, but we do want to work on it a bit more as well, because we 
still have to use cardboard boxes. We haven't found a solution for that. And we still have to use like shipping labels and everything. So we are constantly also looking for more options in terms of shipping supplies that are more eco-friendly. So that's something that is also probably in the ideas graveyard that we need to continue to pursue. But if anyone from, you know, listening to the podcast has any ideas or companies they know of, we're currently using no issue, which is this amazing, as I mentioned, compostable packaging, shipping packaging materials company that we just love what they do. And for our scarves, actually, we're able to get their compostable sleeves so they can literally go in the compost. It's pretty amazing. So if anyone from here has any ideas on, you know, boxes, things like that, from a sustainability standpoint, we're all ears. 100% hear that. Ladies, if I may, I'd love to roll out the red carpet. Are there any final call to actions, hiring needs, anything that you want to leave with our listeners? The floor is yours. I think one thing we would just love to touch on really quick is we did just open this part of our site that I do find really interesting and it's called our no waste corner. And it's kind of this different take on a sale. So basically with anything with handmade products, you know, we got some products shipped to us for our latest order and they came in because of issues with COVID and stuff. There were some things that weren't translated from our artisan to the rest of the artisans correctly. So there were some longer handle handles, bigger stitching than anticipated and things that we just didn't feel that were the exact product that we had offered our, you know, customers, even though we told them they're all a little different, it was just a little too different. So we opened this part of our site and we do think it's really, you know, kind of goes into this like kind of perfectly imperfect, which is really what, you know, handmade products are in general. But we basically opened it so that we can sell bags that are maybe a little different than the ones we have on the site, or if we ever run into any snags, things like that at a sale so that there is no waste involved. And that's been a really popular thing for us as well. So I did just want to mention that because I do think it's kind of a cool take on a sale and something a little bit different. I love this. Yeah, so... (laughs) Yeah, you know, instead of not accepting the product or throwing it away, we decided to sell them at a discounted price. And, And the premise is basically to embrace the imperfect and to combat this culture of waste. This is amazing. It reminds me of a uh, previous guest, Misfits Market. Oh, yeah. Right? And yeah, I love that. Instead of throwing away yeah. perfectly good potatoes and veggies that are perfectly good and nutritious, they sell them at a discount. And I think that ethos and that model is brilliant. So how can people find that collection? Where, where would you like to send some of our listeners? Yeah, so they can just head right to our site. And at the top, it's just one of the options. So there'll be shop and then it says zero waste and you just click on there. And it'll just show you the bags that are for sale that, like we said, are just at a little bit of a discount from our other bags, which is great for people for a little bit of a lower price point, but they're still beautiful, handmade. And honestly, some people have been preferring them because on one of our bags, particularly, it's a longer handle. And for them, they're like, oh, it's great because I actually like something that I can put over my shoulder. So for some people, they've actually been flocking to them. And like we said, it's just a really good way to kind of do a different bit of a play on a sale, but also, you know, really kind of full circle embracing our platform and our values. And, you know, that's kind of really what we're all about. And, you know, just kind of, kind of, constantly trying to innovate in this industry and not just realizing that everything has to be so linear, you know, just because other brands have done this for, you know, 50 years and they've been successful in their ways, it doesn't mean it's the only way. And I think that's something that we've really realized through all this and that, you know, it doesn't have to be, not everything has to have a system exactly in place in order for it to work, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes when things are systematized and stuff, that's when it, becomes something that we really don't necessarily want it to be you know for us there is such a value in these handcrafted products and you know really you know as much as we would both love this to be our full-time thing eventually and you know really grow it we also really want to be cognizant about what growth means and our 
dream for growth is really more about expanding people's knowledge of these handmade products and also of these artisans' talents. So I think that's one thing that I definitely want to leave with people is that's really what our brand is to us. And like I said, as much as, you know, making money is nice and stuff, we actually get just so much value in people coming to us and being like, this bag is so beautiful. It is so sturdy. It's so well-made. One of my friends was like, Carolyn, I've been putting like two laptops, my charger, all, I'm like, okay, don't, don't overstuff it. I think it's just really nice to hear the appreciation that people have for this kind of thing. And, you know, I do think there's this movement that's kind of turning away from fast fashion and really just focusing on what do I need in my life, you know? And I actually was listening to a podcast a few weeks ago, and the, the woman was kind of discussing about how during the pandemic, you know, we all really flocked to grocery stores. And at the start, people were just buying everything out. And this was just such a classic American thing of not taking what we need, but just over overtaking everything, you know, and Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of that mentality. And once people really saw like what this pandemic has done, and, you know, have been through this experience, I think we have so much more of an appreciation for just what would I take with me if I had to leave my house now, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really important shift in mentality, and something that we've seen through our consumers. I love it. Monica, do you want to add anything to that before we part ways or? Uh, Sure. So I think like from the start, um, Caroline already mentioned this, but we knew that we wanted to have strong company values. We wanted to be conscious participants of the supply chain. And I know this might sound super corny, but we wanted to do well by doing good and, you know, yielding environmental and social benefits to society at large. So As a brand, our culture really is to dissect every single business decision that we make at every single level of the company and keep not only sustainability, but also the well-being of our artisans top of mind. And that's what we're about. I love it. And to anyone listening, if this resonates with you, honestly, head over to shopryu.com. Beautiful stuff. These are just rock star founders, beautiful products. Monica and Caroline, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Hey there, you made it to the outro. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you're new here, welcome. If you're a longtime listener, thank you so much. We're actively casting for new guests on our show. So if you have a rock star founder or company in mind that's working on something cool, Message me on Instagram at Peter A. Levin or email us hello at ingothands.us. Thank you so much again and look forward to bring you another new episode next Tuesday.